Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, neuroscientist Bo Lotto on the science of seeing differently in his book, Deviate. Bo Lotto is Professor of Neuroscience at University of London Goldsmiths and also a visiting scholar at NYU, and he specialises in the biology and psychology of perception. He's conducted and presented research on human perception and behaviour for more than 25 years. In 2001, Bo founded Lab of Misfits, which had a two-year residency at London Science Museum. And Bo is now the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently, which we're going to be talking about today. Bo, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. It's very much to be here. And the first thing I'm going to say is, before we talk about the book, Bo, let's talk about Lab of Misfits and what it is and what it does. Yeah, so the Lab of Misfits, it's really, it's a real science lab. So its aim is to not only understand the principles by which we see, but also to use those principles to create opportunities for people to see differently. And the reason why we call it the Lab of Misfits is because it's people who are experts maybe in one domain, but don't necessarily fit within that domain, or rather their aspirations extend beyond that domain. So we work with fashion designers, choreographers, dancers. We have people doing single-cell physiology on bumblebee brains. And what brings them all together is a concept and that concept is perception. And there's, there's one particular thing that you talk about in the book in, in the context of the Lab of Misfits, which is a thing that was called the experiment. What was that? So the experiment, it's, uh, we have a number of different kinds of outputs. One of them we call the experiment, as you're saying. And the experiment in this case is where we turn the lab into a sort of a theater nightclub experience. And the reason why we do that is we discovered that the lab in a university setting when studying human behavior is itself a theater. People often behave in that setting in a way they think they're supposed to. What's more, that the subjects of those experiments tend to be kids 18 to 20 years old uh, from basically psychology undergraduate students whose prefrontal cortex hasn't even fully developed. And from that, we generalize what it is to be human. So if you really want to study people and uh, how and why they do and see what they do, we want to study people in their natural habitat, in the places where they really make decisions, where they really behave. And we also want to create an environment in which we then can give the data back to them. So people who come to this experience also walk away with a better understanding themselves. Let's talk about deviate then. So what's the idea behind the book? 
There are lots of ideas behind the book, but the, really the fundamental one as I start the book is I want people to know less at the end than they think they know at the beginning. Why? Because nothing really interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing. It begins with a question, not with an answer. And I want people to question at the most fundamental level, to the level of what they actually see when they open their eyes. And so really, Deviate is about providing not how we see or when we see or what we see as such, but why we see what we do. And in understanding that, it creates a tremendous possibility of actually seeing differently. And you're taking that to the extent that even the design of the book sort mm. of fits that remit as well. Tell us something about the, you know, the look and feel of the book itself, of the actual artefact. Yeah, so that was really important. So you say the look and feel. So that starting with the feel, actually selected, helped select the paper that we use the cover, um, the textile nature of the book itself, because we keep forgetting that the brain evolved in a body and a body in our world, and that's how we actually make meaning, is by physically interacting with the world. So that touch is really important. But also, if you're writing a book about perception, much less the perception of yourself and of others and the possibility of perceiving differently, the book itself needed to be a trope. I'm a huge advocate of tropes. They are the thing that they talk about. So people, when they're reading the book, actually physically engage with the book, not just their eyes moving across the lines of ink, but also turning the book upside down. Sometimes there's just complete empty spaces because it's trying to represent that idea of silence. So it's trying to get people to physically engage with this object and with the idea, partly because to tell something to someone, in some sense you've taken it from them. But if they can discover it, then it becomes part of them and it becomes far more meaningful and it becomes understanding rather than just information. And there are, you know, there's a line where the font will be a different size. A couple of words will be in a different size font. What's that actually doing? Is there anything going on in our brain when we, you know, read it along the line, as you said, and then we notice mm. something like that? What happens? Well, if you think about what happens is, in some sense, it's directing your attention. It's getting you to obviously highlight certain words, get you to think maybe more deeply about certain words or about the words that you've just left. In fact, you could think about more like a choreographer or rather a curator, maybe more accurately, who he or she is trying to get you to walk through the space in a particular way because they want you to have a particular narrative, while at the same time leaving you space to explore in your own space and time. So one of the ideas behind the book, as you've said, you want people to, you know, to finish reading this book, hypothetically knowing less than they did when they started it. The other theme of the book is that, or one of the many themes of the book, is this idea that objective reality is not what we see. I want to start looking into that idea by talking about what do we mean in this context by objective reality? So objective reality is the sense, reality is, of course, a very difficult word to be using in this context. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that there is a physical world. There are elements, there is structure outside of us. But that structure, those elements aren't necessarily what we actually see when we open our eyes. There are a number of reasons for that. The first reason is because we have no access to that physical world other than through our senses. And as Barclay tells us, it's through our senses that we then, that enables us to then interact with that world. But if I can never get feedback that my perceptions were accurate in any literal sense, because that information from that world is inherently ambiguous, because it conflates multiple things about that world, then what else can I do? So first of all, we have a physical separation from the world. We receive this data 
the data conflates multiple aspects of that world. So the listeners, what they can do to demonstrate this is they can hold up their finger in front of their face and they can line up their fingers so that it projects the same size as something large and far away. Now, of course, those two things are completely different sizes. But as far as your retina is concerned, at that moment, they are identical because the data conflates multiple aspects of the world, in this case, size and distance. Now, size and distance literally exists, but we don't see it as it is. We don't see it accurately. So instead, we use another kind of information that the brain has access to, which is history. And it's not the history of what the data turned out to be in any literal sense. It's what it turned out to be in terms of a utility sense. What evolution and learning and development give you are utility, not accuracy. So instead, what you do is when you open your eyes, you see a reality. But that reality is one that was useful to see in the past. I'm Alex Kratosky, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's two analogies, or well, analogy and a and an experiment that you talk about in the book that sort of contextualise this. And the first is this idea, sort of illustrates Bishop Barclay's idea, which you just mentioned about a person basically living in like a mobile home and and witnessing the world through just the window, just to being able to see through a very small window. And then also there's this experiment that you talk about with the two cats, where one cat is like in a box and the other one's like in a sort of harness and has more freedom. Could you explain those that analogy of the mobile home first of all? And then we'll talk about how that sort of carries forward into the actual experimental. Yeah, so the two are obviously directly related. So this idea of a mobile home is that in some sense, our brain is sitting inside this space, that space being our bodies. And that body moves this brain around, but it has a very narrow access to that world. So the windows of our eyes and the uh, limited information that your ears receive of the vibrations that happen in the world. And this information is, again, conflating multiple aspects. So it's not just that our window is narrow, which it is. So if you think about light, light is actually the region of electromagnetic radiation that our retina is sensitive to. The range of electromagnetic radiation is massive, but we're sensitive to an incredibly small region. And within that region, you can imagine massive fluctuations. But across the whole spectrum, they might be identical. So you could have two things that within our region, which we call light, they're exactly opposite, but everything else is exactly the same. And yet we would call them opposite. So not only is our window narrow, but then the meaning of that data is also meaningless or ambiguous, right? Because even if we had direct access to the world, it still doesn't tell you what to do with it. The meaning of a rock, the utility of your rock, is completely different if you're an ant than if you're a human. Hence, the need for the brain to then make meaning by physically interacting with the sources of the data. The data is just the beginning. In fact, only 10% of the information your brain uses to see in terms of sort of neural connections comes from your retina. The other 90% come from other parts of your brain. So in some sense, your eyes are almost, they're like the keyboard is for a computer. The way they get the stuff in, but very little to with what we see. So this experiment with the, the two cats, what's going on there? So the, the significance of that experiment, which we experience all the time as individuals, is that when these two cats, they were recently born and the eyes just opened, And one of the kittens was able to run freely on the ground. The other one was suspended in a basket. But it was pulled by the one on the ground. And the point was that experimenters wanted to give them more or less the same visual history of the world in terms of just data. And after a period of time, they tested the one on the ground, and it saw perfectly fine, as you would imagine. But the one in the basket was effectively blind. It couldn't see. Its eyes were open, but it never was able to interact with the sources of the meaningless data and make meaning from it. 
And then when you let it run around, it would then learn to see. So what this tells us is the way your brain makes meaning is by physically interacting with the sources of the data, not with the data itself. And in this world of increasing digital technology, where we're passively being receiving all this data, which is itself pointless. It's not where your brain lives in terms of making meaning. It makes meaning by physically interacting with things that are out there. He talks about you know, light on the electromagnetic spectrum and the, and the very narrow range that we can see, the lights mm. and therefore the colours that we can perceive. But of course, not everything is like that. There are other species that can see a wider range. Mm. Also, I mean, I want to talk about the mantis shrimp, which is incredibly interesting and has this like huge range mm. of, of the spectrum that it can see. Um, I've come across the mantis shrimp before. Well, I, I was fascinated to discover that reindeer can also see in ultraviolet. Mm. Why? Well, because it was behaviorally useful to do so, right? And bumblebees and other insects can see in ultraviolet and can't see in the red, uh, much less infrared. And this all comes down to evolution. What we see is what was useful to see. You take, for instance, the sounds of R&L for Japanese. Now, it's not that those sounds... So what happens if you're Japanese is you can't actually hear a difference between those sounds in the context of language. Why? It's not because those sounds don't exist in the language. It's because it's not behaviorally useful to make a distinction between them. The point is, we evolved to see the world usefully, not accurately. So to see in the infrared is very useful for a reindeer. To see, in fact, the mantis shrimp has a tremendous range of sensitivity relative to us. Their visual system, their, rather their color visual system, is far more complex than ours. We're almost colorblind compared to a mantis shrimp. More than this, they see a quality of light that we're completely blind to, which is polarization. So light comes in orientations. So when a mantis shrimp or some birds or insects look up into the sky, and particularly, say, a bumblebee, they don't necessarily see a uniform blue. They see structure. They see pattern which we're completely blind to. We have no idea how that's represented, if it is at all, inside their heads. Yeah, this is not even something I can imagine. We can't even imagine. We can conceptualize it. We can know that it exists, but we have no idea what it looks like. There's a number of illusions, visual illusions, represented in the book. And you talk later on about you know, the very concept of an illusion is an illusion in itself. And perhaps we'll get onto that. But before we look at some of the visual ones, or before we talk about some of the visual ones, obviously we're on radio, so it's difficult to replicate the actual visual illusions. But there's there's obviously illusions for other senses as well, and you talk about you know ways mm. in which like sound illusions and things. But I wanted to talk particularly about the arm, the, the fake arm illusion. It's the false hand illusion. So what happens is the experimenter is sitting opposite the subject, and the subject actually has their forearm underneath the table and stretched out in front of them. And lying directly over the top of their forearm is a false arm, more or less in the same orientation, same location, just a little bit higher. And what happens is that the experimenter will take a pin and touch the false arm, but at the same time takes a pin and touches their arm in the same location. What happens is a subject can see the fake arm being touched, but feel the location being touched on their arm, they then start perceiving the fake arm to belong to themselves. And that's a, an incredibly powerful illusion. But again, what that demonstrates is they're generating perception based on their recent history, their experience, and in this case, the coordination between the visual input and the somatosensory input. And then the brain is making a meaning of it, grounded in their history of what this kind of stuff would have meant before. <laughs> 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Bo Lotto. We're talking about his book, Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. And Bo, I mentioned that we were going to talk about some visual illusions. Mm. Um, and perhaps, again, as I said, this is it's difficult to replicate without seeing the actual illusions that you yeah, reproduce in the book. Let's talk about... Well, I want to talk about a person, actually. Let's talk about the work of the, the French chemist, Michel Eugène Chevreau. And, and like, we'll get on to, basically, how colour, how we see colour is dependent on context and obviously a number of other factors, but particularly... So tell us who he was. So Chevreau was a chemist, and he worked in the dye industry. And he, had, he did many things. But in this particular instance, he was brought in by the King of France to figure out why the colours that people were selecting in their threads, when they got woven together, didn't continue to be seen as the same color as those threads themselves. And so what he discovered was that the perceived color of the threads was very much dependent on the color of the threads that surrounded them. So he effectively demonstrated that the perception of color is directly related to the colors that surround you. It's called simultaneous color contrast. It's an illusion. What it demonstrates is that at the most fundamental level of our perception seeing color. Because if you imagine seeing the intensity of light and the quality of light, surely perception doesn't get any simpler than that, any more basic than that. And even at that level, what you see is not determined by the actual data, but the context of that data. But a deeper question is, why is that necessarily the case? Why does context determine what we see? Not simply that it does. Well, to understand that question is really to understand what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the argument to deviate is a deeper understanding of what it is to be human, resides in our understanding of our most simple perception, which is lightness and color. So why? It's because, again, it goes back to the idea that we have no access to that world, and so therefore the brain is generating perceptions based on its history of experience of interacting with that world. So when you're presented with a stimulus, imagine you're presented with a, a light patch, See what would normally in a black background appear in medium gray. Now if you take that medium gray patch and surround it by a lighter patch, it'll look darker than if the exact same patch was surrounded by a dark region. So something in a light background appears darker than something in a dark background. It's called simultaneous brightness contrast. And the reason is because that stimulus could have many different sources. It could be a surface in light or shadow, or it could just be a surface that is on a lighter or dark background. Right? Your brain doesn't know. So it generates a perception based on what it could have been in the past. So there is the possibility that those two surfaces, those two patches, are under light and shadow. Now, if it's under light, and the same amount of light is coming to your eye as the one that is in shadow, then it must be a darker surface. Because more light's hitting it, and yet less light is coming to your eye, so it must be less reflective, so your brain sees it that way. Before we talk about why, what the point of that is... It occurred to me, as I said, we couldn't really replicate on the radio the, the illusions that you replicate in the book, but everybody will be familiar with the, you know, the recent internet phenomenon of the dress, mm. won't they? You, you talk about in that, that in the book. So that's basically what's going on with that illusion, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So people would see it as being one colour or the other, uh, depending on the context that they actually sort of attended to. And there are different ways of seeing it. And what's really interesting about that, because when that came out, people like myself who do color research, we were inundated with requests for doing interviews, etc. Why is this happening? What I found really interesting, actually, in time was not simply that that was happening, but that it became viral. People are aware that illusions exist, but why did this become so powerful? And it's because people experience directly 
different perceptions of color than someone who was sitting right next to them. And while they can appreciate that someone from France or someone from Italy might have different words and different ways of of imagining and conceiving the world, but surely at the level of color, we all see the world the same way. Indeed, we must see it accurately. So this really shook a lot of people. On people the, got angry about it. They got it. angry. They almost as if they refused to believe it because suddenly this, what does that mean from my perception of myself? What does this mean from my perception of objectivity? How can I actually trust my perception? And the argument of deviate is that actually it's a beautiful thing. Because now, once you understand that perception is not about, it, we didn't evolve to see the world accurately. In fact, it's not even useful to see it that way necessarily. What you really want to do is see it usefully. And again, that utility is grounded in your history, which means that what you're doing right now can become part of your future history, which means you can actually shape what you're going to see in the future. You become part of that process of making meaning rather than an innocent bystander of inherited meanings. You said that people obviously know what an illusion is and understand an illusion. And what is what's great about an illusion is when you see you see a card trick, and that's amazing. But like once you know how that card trick works, it sort of loses some of the magic. Mm. But with an illusion, it's almost better when you know how it works, what the science is behind it. But also, an illusion is something that even when you see it, you can't not see it. Like I'm thinking now of the, you know, the famous one of like Einstein. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Head on like a sort of plastic, almost jelly mold of, of Einstein's head, which like, no matter how you force yourself to know, you know what's going on. You know the thing's turning around. You can't not see that thing your brain just yes does it. that's exactly right they're called cognitively impenetrable so knowing it doesn't help you but what's really powerful is knowing that it happens is the first step to seeing differently what do i mean by that we call it seeing yourself see as soon as you see an illusion that is and you don't know it is one that is your perceptual reality let's say these two things look different whatever they happen to be now, as soon as you reveal that those two things that look different are in fact physically the same, your brain is holding two mutually exclusive possibilities at the same time. You're seeing a difference, but you're also knowing that they're the same. That is literally becoming an observer of yourself. You're seeing yourself see. What you're actually seeing is the history 
of what you saw before. You're literally looking through your history. And that's really actually quite astounding and powerful. The other thing that it demonstrates is that our perceptions are reflexes. Everything you're doing right now, your perceptions, your behaviors, are nothing other than a complex reflex arc. In the same way that if a doctor hits your patellar tendon, your leg jumps out. And that is a very efficient reflex arc that is evolved for a function. But so true is our behavior and our perceptions. They seem much more complex because the reflex arc is more complex, but it's still a reflex arc that is shaped with the passage of time and empirically through our interaction with the world. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So what is, in simplest possible terms, what is the point of this? Why have we evolved to be taken in by these sort of illusions? Mm. What's the... What's the benefit to us of that sort of, you know, the when we, before you were talking about the differentiation between like different depths of colour and shadow and mm. light? Why does that help us? Why does it help us? Because it keeps us alive. So this is all about adaptation. And the reason why it keeps us alive is it demonstrates that if everything I'm seeing is grounded in my history, of my empirical history of the world. Now, if the world was static, I don't really need to change. I don't really need to adapt. But our world is not static. It's changing all the time. So your brain is evolved to evolve. It's adapted to adapt, which is in some sense one aspect and one consequence of being born too early. We can then adapt to the immediate environment, which is one reason why humans have been able to inhabit all kinds of different niches, much more so than any other animal, because our brain is incredibly plastic. And this is true at the level of perception. So your brain has evolved to continually redefine normality because the world is constantly changing. What illusions show is the nature of the perception itself. These are not tricks of perception. These are not mistakes. They're only mistakes if you think the brain evolved to see the world accurately. That is trying to make some sort of isomorphic representation of the stuff that's actually out there. But instead what illusions demonstrate is that we evolved to see something else we evolved to see something useful. So when you see an illusion, what you're actually seeing is a useful perception, i.e. one that was statistically useful in the past. Because it's not actually trying to see something accurately, it's trying to see something usefully. And we were talking about you know, how we've evolved, and that's obviously over you know, a, a long period of time, billions of years, but because the brain is plastic, it enables us to adapt obviously a lot quicker. And you, you mentioned some sort of extreme examples of that. So tell us about Ben Underwood, this this young man who was... Well, you tell us who he was. So Ben was someone who had cancer in his retina, and so he was unable to see because he had to be removed. And so it's an incredibly, in many senses, objectively terribly sad situation. But what was remarkable about Ben was, in many senses, his mother. So Ben's mother created an environment of security that enabled Ben to then step into insecurity, that enabled Ben to step into uncertainty, because it's only in uncertainty that we can have the possibility of learning. So Ben went into this space of complete uncertainty, complete unknown, and taught himself how to navigate the world, the visual world, the physical world, by clicking. And because initially, of course, those clicks would have been completely meaningless. The sounds, rather the reverberation of the sounds off the world around him, it would have been meaningless. The data was just meaningless data. But through interacting with the world, he has been able to make meaningful behaviors from that, basically, echolocation. So Ben's brain was able to adapt to this recent history and take what was previously meaningless data and make it meaningful. And 
he was able to roller skate. He was able to do all kinds of remarkable things because his mom created this environment of security that enabled him to step into insecurity and redefine normality. Using that amazing example to, to sort of lead us into the last part of the show, the second part of this book and the sort of point of this book is to talk about how once we've made that realisation, once we, we understand more how we perceive the world around us, we can begin to use that in ways that can improve our life, I guess, is the the easiest way to describe it. So let's talk about how. Yeah, so how. So if you think that uh, perception, again, and what you do in the moment, your behaviors, your perceptions, are grounded in your history, it means that whatever you're going to do next is necessarily constrained by the assumptions and your biases that experience give you. And whenever you open your eyes, whenever you do something, you always have biases, and assumptions. It's not that sometimes you do. You always do. So when you're walking, your brain has hundreds of biases about the world, that your legs aren't going to give away, the ground's not going to give away. These biases and assumptions keep you alive. But they can also get in the way because they necessarily constrain what you're going to do next. What's more, your brain doesn't necessarily do big jumps. It only, more or less, takes small steps to the next most likely possible, given your space of possibility. Your space of possibility is determined by your assumptions and biases. So as soon as you're aware of that, what that means is to become creative, see something differently, means you have to first accept that everything you do has an assumption of bias. What's more, you then have to realize that a lot of your biases and assumptions are blind to you, and you're blind to them. You don't necessarily know why you do what you do. Sometimes the best person to reveal your own biases and assumptions to you is not you, it's someone else. So once you accept and discover what those biases and assumptions are, you then have to do the third step, which is possibly one of the most difficult, which is to question them. Because we hate to not know. To not know, to be unable to predict, was to increase the probability of dying during evolution. So we evolved to take what is uncertain and make it certain. If you're not sure that was a predator, it was too late. So your brain really quite hates stepping into uncertainty in almost every circumstance because it's literally increasing the chance of dying. It's one of the reasons why we're afraid of the dark. In fact, ironically, why rats are actually afraid of the light, because to go to the light is actually increase their uncertainty. They love the dark. They're exactly opposite from us. So you then have to question these assumptions, step into uncertainty. And that's the only way we can actually see differently, because by questioning your assumptions, you effectively change the space of possibility that surrounds you. Well, let's talk about an example of how we can sort of extrapolate that up there. So you talk about, for instance, you know, how we can improve our relationships by questioning our assumptions yeah so if we think about interpersonal relationships because again what's true about perception of the lowest level has to be true all the way up and when a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it doesn't make a sound the answer is no it creates vibration the tree exists it creates energy but the energy is not sound the sound doesn't exist if we're not there in the same way color is not a function of the world electromagnetic radiation is but color is not Light is not colored. So when you look out into the world and you see something red, the red couldn't be closer to you. It's inside your head projected outward. But what's true for objects is also true for other people. People, like objects, like the world, are just sources of meaningless data. While you can measure their what and their where and their when, you can't measure their why. Which means that every personality that you see, every personality that you perceive, is inside you projected outward in the same way that color is. So you color other people. It's actually you projected outward based on your history of what that data meant in your past, which creates this remarkable situation where to facilitate relationship means you have to enter conflict with the world and other people in a different way. Rather than entering conflict with knowing and certainty and answers, knowing perception 
it tells us you need to enter conflict in a different way, which is with questions and doubt and uncertainty. Now imagine if people entered conflict with questions instead of answers. What would be possible then? Because it's only in conflict that we actually have the possibility of learning. But we don't learn if we're entering it with answers and questions. We have the possibility of winning, but not learning. And so to extrapolate that further then, as a final question, you know, how could we widen that to wider society? You know, I mean, how could we live better together if we took some of these lessons? It's again about conflict resolution, to celebrate doubt, which ultimately is deviates trying to do, is trying to create a fundamental sense of doubt in people, but with courage. Because, again, to enter a situation which is different from what you expect, with questions, to engage with someone who's different from yourself with a question rather than the answer, creates the possibility of understanding. And what I mean by understanding, and the consequence of understanding, is actually to broaden yourself, to open yourself. And that's hugely advantageous. Because what you really want to do at any point in time is have many different directions you can move from. If you're just so limited in your assumptions and biases that you can only move in a single line, you're going to quickly be selected out. But if you can move in many different directions because you have a complex set of biases and assumptions that you've learned from other people, other cultures, and through books, literature, etc., now you have the possibility of being adaptable. And the most successful systems are the ones that are most adaptable. It's a great point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Bo Lotto. We've been talking about Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently, which is out now in the UK from Weederfield and Nicholson. Bo, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.